Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people in Quebec by FL Montreal. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton of FL Fuller Landau. Hello, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. Show number two of uh, what used to be called Today's Entrepreneur. Again, 14th season now. Thanks very much for going along with the uh, Inspiring Entrepreneurs rebrand. You know, it's a great city. There's a uh, there's an awful lot of great companies uh, and and a lot of inspirational stories. So, you know, I, it it's I don't I don't want to say it's my obligation to continue because it's certainly more than that. But uh, it's we're never we're never short of stories and never short of guests. And I think uh, today we've got another uh, great example of how strong and how vibrant the, the 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 youthful tech community is here in Montreal. Yeah, so we're going from last week, we had one of the oldest businesses around, really, uh, to Heyday. They're a brand new business. Uh, they were bought out by Hootsuite recently, uh, Hootsuite being the social media management company. But Heyday is the AI chatbot for retail organizations. So if you deal with a chatbot online, uh, like an FAQ chatbot, uh, this is the, the more humanistic way to, uh, to approach chatbots. And so that is on the way with Etienne, the founder of Heyday. Um, last week on the program, uh, Canada's oldest family business, Mike. If you missed the episode, you got to check out Peter Simons of Simons. Really interesting program. I mean, they go obviously way back. It's a very, very um, established business. And out of all of our entrepreneurs, Mike, I can't recall anyone mentioning luck as their one piece of advice, in their one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. What, what do you make of the role of luck? I just wanted your thoughts on that because I thought that was, that was such a different thing that, that Peter Simons really takes some time to contemplate how, how lucky he is. Yeah, I think you can take luck in a couple of different directions here. I mean, if you if you want to take luck in the sense of uh, I succeeded because I was lucky, uh, you know, you can you can go with that. You know, with the hard work. It's amazing how lucky you get when you work hard. I mean, you can take it in that direction. Uh, or uh, my dad's old line: I'd I'd rather be lucky than good any day. So I'll take that. Um, you can also look at it the other way. And, and, and when you use the term lucky, is is the byproduct of working in an environment that has created what Montreal or Canada or Quebec is and and we are lucky we are lucky to be in an environment that is you know it, that is capitalism with a conscience uh, more so than uh, than many other countries yeah indeed it's not only luck but how do you how do you capitalize on the luck too and make the most of your your time here as an entrepreneur um, let's start there actually today uh, with the thing that's called I mean it's called ESG investing it's called the triple bottom line basically it's being a socially conscious entrepreneur. So this is something that has to be, in my view, Mike, uh, part of the business model. Is 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 that what you're seeing as well? That um, you know that the triple bottom line is something that's baked into companies more and more now. Yeah. So for those of you who are looking uh, for us today to come up with what exactly that formula is, I'm going to disappoint you and tell you there isn't one yet. Uh, this is a moving target, and and I saw I found a great line from John Elkington, uh, who's part of the Harvard Business Review, and it says the triple line wasn't designed to be an accounting tool. It was proposed to provoke deeper thinking about capitalism and its future. Um, and, and when you get into the triple bottom line, I think you get into an interesting Venn diagram where you would take people, planet and prosperity or capitalism or profit, uh, and you've got an overlapping piece in the center. And, and how do they live together? How do we find a way to um, 
create, I mean, there's no doubt that you can't have employment, you can't have jobs, unless you've got some profit and some money left at the end of the day. So the older capitalist approach is going to say, hey, you know, without us and without the bottom line, all the rest of the stuff is hot air. Um, The people are going to look at you and say, and we're living this in Montreal as we are around the world right now, people are going to look at you and say, hey, you don't take care of us as people. You have nobody, Mr. Capitalist, in order to do the work that needs to be done to create the profitability. And oh, by the way, in the meantime, all of that's wrapped up in an environment that has to be taken into consideration as to what are our effects short-term, long-term, and how are we either hurting or trying to fix some of the things that we've done in the last little while. So this triple bottom line is is not a number crunching accountant uh, approach to things, but rather, uh, as as John Elkington said, a, a deeper thinking about uh, about profitability and capitalism. So the the triple bottom line being uh, people, planet, and prosperity. Hundred percent, and then and you know the, those uh, and and the biggest element is not each one of those in isolation, but the biggest element is that pro that point where they all intersect, and how do you find a way to make that uh, a win win for all three of those categories? Is there going to be a metric developed in the years to come that will at least bring these activities into something that entrepreneurs can? you know, um, devote resources to uh, just a clear way to gauge whether or not you're hitting all those points? Uh, We're hoping so. I mean, we're certainly not there yet. Uh, Our guest today talks about AI. So maybe AI will come up with a way for us to to determine how we link all of that together. but really, I mean, you've got to look at a number of things. One, you've got to look at today's impact. You've got to look at discounting, you know, present value of future profits expected by a given period of time. I mean, you can take all the financial models and bring it back. Um, but how do you how do you measure the the success of what's going on in a planet? And how do you, as a business owner, measure your success and define that into a bottom line? In my opinion, I think it's it's how we're going to measure this, Dan, is going to ultimately be we are going to have different bottom lines with a different goal and a different objective to meet. And you're either going to, like you do now with profit, you're either going to uh, succeed, you're going to fail, or you're going to be right on budget. Well, ultimately, we're going to have to have some kind of measurement that's going to have the same thing when it comes to you know, succeeding, failing, or being just on budget for people and for uh, the environment. And speaking of socially conscious investing, Yvon Chouinard, uh, the founder of Patagonia, uh, he has some Quebecois background, so it's a, it's a brand that's very close, uh, that's appreciated by Quebecers too. And uh, they basically decided they're going to give away their entire company. They, they set up a trust and a nonprofit organization to basically uh, deal with all the profits. Um, obviously, that's, that's an extremely generous situation. We were talking about succession uh, last week on the show, Mike, so that's, that's a bit of an extreme succession plan. Um, but there, there, there's one model to follow, right? Uh, just saying, saying no to profits that I'm sure will, uh, will, will please a lot of people of my generation. Uh, you know, I'm not even going to try and get inside of uh, Mr. Schwinyar's head on this one uh, because, you know, you're taking a $3 billion company, uh, putting it into a specially designed trust and a nonprofit organization that's going to be focused on combating climate change and protecting undeveloped land around the globe. Just as that was a mouthful, it's the the whole concept is an entire thought provoking environment of what exactly is this? I mean, some people and and, and I've read I've read his purpose, but I've also read a number of commentary and, you know, people have gone from, you know, he's a philanthropist. 
uh, to he's an opportunist, to he's a, uh, you know, he, he, he's a mercenary because of the tax save. I mean, I could come up with a hundred different reasons why uh, people are thinking he's doing it. And it would be very interesting, I guess, uh, it would be great to get him on the show, Marjorie. Uh, it'd be really good to, uh, to to get inside his head in terms of what's provoking this uh, long-term scenario. I mean, he's he's a man who's always had a huge love for the outdoors. Uh, he began climbing, I think, when he was 14 or 15 years old. Um, you know, it's it's it's, it's fascinating uh, to see a man go to such an extreme. Um, is he looking to pave the way? Is he looking to send a message? Is he looking to try and bring, you know, the the, the triple bottom line into people's consciousness? Like I said, I, I could go on for a while just trying to 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 understand what his ultimate goal was. Um, you know, he goes back even to 2011 when it was with Patagonia's comment on Black Friday, where, you know, instead of going out and buying new stuff, he talked about, well, repair what you have and make it last longer. I mean, this is coming from a retailer. I mean, it's a, I'm going to sense that that probably went against the business plan. So, you know, for the last 10 or 12 years, at least openly, he's been very proactive in this concept. Not sure where it's going to take us. It's, it's going to be very interesting to see. There are other models, of course, for giving away at least part of your profits. You've seen this, uh, it, it, countless companies, including FL, by the way, you guys do the dragon boat race every year, you know, in terms of us, you know, we model our give back uh, on effective altruism. It's just really simple for us to do mathematically. Um, what are some of the other models you've seen? I mean, people have foundations within their companies. People start nonprofits, a nonprofit wing of their company. Right. And you, and you look at, you could look at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know, there's a whole bunch of foundations that for a particular purpose have created from wealth. This, I would say, is probably the first one I've seen that's given away the entire company uh, into this environment. So I'm still very curious to dig a little bit deeper and scratch beyond the surface of what this looks like just to try and understand uh, this whole exercise. But, you know, there's there's no doubt that his entire purpose was, you know, is, is environmental change. And, you know, as much as I, I like to think I'm a philanthropist or I like to think that, you know, I'm socially conscious, I don't think I'm at the stage yet where I'm willing to give away 100 percent of everything at, at this stage. So um, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. And and I guess only time will tell as to whether this was a, a good move or uh, a bit of a PR move. In terms of culture, millennials, I think, and we've spoken about this in, in past years, expect companies to give away a little bit, uh, give back to the planet, to their communities. And if they don't, if there's no evidence at all on a, on a company website as far as their give back or, or what they're doing in terms of... Uh, climate change or animal rights or just something to give back. Um, that almost, Mike, looks suspect, I would say. If you have a website and there's no mention of good works at all, that's a red flag. Yeah, I, I, look, I think in an employment market where employers need to be differentiating themselves, um, you know, an employer who is not being philanthropic, is not giving back to the community, is not giving back to the environment, People are going to to run. There's no doubt. You know, money only talks so far to a younger generation. Maybe to the older generation, it's if I was to weight it, it has a different weight. But certainly from the younger generation, if they can't buy into the purpose, if they can't buy into the good that you're doing. Um, you're already discounting yourself out of half of the market, if not more. So I, I totally agree with you that you know part of this is 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 philanthropic. Part of it is mercenary. At the end of the day, I mean, you if you're if if you're not part of this environment, uh, you're 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 already a step behind the eight ball. 
And Mike, today we're going to talk about a product category we have never really touched before, something that is pretty new just in the last few years. Yeah, you. I, there was a radio show at the end of last year where you brought up AI and asked my opinion, and I floundered like a fish out of water. So I'm going to do my best to walk through this one and and make it sound like I have some idea what I'm talking about. But um, just for those listeners that uh, that are not necessarily familiar with AI, we are going to uh, to bring it down to a level during this conversation so that everybody kind of gets a feeling of what we're talking about. We won't get too technical with everyone. So it is AI. It's a chatbot for retail stores. It's called Heyday. And uh, they were recently acquired by Hootsuite, Montreal-based uh, social media management company. Uh, the co-founder and CMO of Heyday is Etienne Merino. He joins us today. Hello, Etienne. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me today. Our pleasure. So first question is the simplest. Uh, you can probably explain it better than we can. What is Heyday? Yeah, it's actually a loaded question, right? Well, I, li I like to, you know, I, I think technology is a mean to an end, not an end to itself. So I like to almost not talk about AI, but we're a customer messaging platform. So we help businesses and customers to connect better online. And what that, what that means in this day and age is in a more conversational fashion, right? People love to use messaging um, to chat with their friends, with their family, uh, with their coworkers nowadays. So why not being able to message businesses, right? To ask questions off the cuff, you know, in a, a synchronous manner, instead of waiting on the line, on the phone, or for an email, for an answer. And uh, so that's really like a, a one-stop shop customer messaging platform, web and social. And we use AI more in a way to grease the wheel. So as a first line of defense, right? So it's the first line of defense to automate sales and support questions. And that chatbot can be kind of your employee of the month, 24 seven available, uh, a little bit like the self checkout lane at the grocery store. So customers get the, the two options. It's interesting because I think there's a lot of people, as soon as you go to a website, it's, you know, many, many retail websites right away pops up in the bottom right corner usually of your screen is uh, is the chatbot. You know, and, and for some people, you can you can see that, you know, certainly the younger generation is automatic go into it. Uh, for a lot of people, um, you know, I think they, they they think that this is this has got a person behind it at the initial levels. Uh, maybe describe a little bit the filtering process that goes on through the chatbot on uh, in a lot of these customer care sites. Yeah, I think it's really important also for the chatbot to be straightforward, that it's a chatbot, like too many uh, AI assistants or chatbots. Again, like it, it's kind of a loaded words because there are some chatbots that are rule-based, so there's not much intelligence. It's just kind of like question and answer. In our case, we, we use natural language processing to understand queries and, and kind of like dissect them and get the intent behind it. So that's kind of like a separate conversation, I guess, but it's, it's, it's a wide spectrum of solutions. But it's very key for whatever, even if it's a basic chatbot or more advanced chatbot, to be honest about it, to be transparent that, hey, I'm a virtual assistant. I can help you with ABC, you know, for, can help you with tracking order or finding a product, but, you know, uh, you can always have a human in the loop if you, you would rather talk to a human. And that usually creates that hybrid, you know, uh, mechanism or, or solution creates a, a more desirable um, outcome for customers. Because if you, you're left alone with a chatbot, I'm sure you've lived it as a customer, <laughs> you might get frustrated depending on the level of, of intelligence. So again, I use the grocery store analogy. If you'd rather pay with a you know a human cashier, good old fashioned, that's fair enough, you know. <laughs> and if you'd rather go uh, the speedy route or on the self checkout lane, uh, you can do that. So it gives flexibility both for the business and the customer. I am, I, I would lie if I said I haven't been frustrated by, on the phone too. So you know, I take it yeah. all in stride at the end of the day. Um, the use of social media and and the messaging platforms have skyrocketed since the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, we saw so many changes to uh, to the consumer habits during the pandemic. Um, you know, 
some of the numbers I'm seeing, somewhere between 40 to 50% of social media users are expecting a reply within 60 minutes of hopping on a website or asking a question. I mean, the reality is, is that timing is, is, is astronomically cut uh, from where we used to be. Is any of this possible without AI? Is there any way that we can, you can provide as a, uh, a retailer or, or a service provider any close, anywhere close to the kind of service that you're getting, at least with the initial concept of AI? Well, I think it's impossible, right? Without breaking the bank, because that here's the thing: like customers have expectations that are higher than ever. I mean, nowadays, like even even if you're a grocery store, you know, a bookshop, or you know, a retail store, anything in between, you're you're compared to you know the experience you get with Amazon. You know, uh, same day shipping, <laughs> instant convenience, the same as Uber, right? Like you you tap on a on a button and you get a private chauffeur to your doorstep. So these technology companies uh, really kind of raise the bar for everyone. And the expectation now is no longer, you know, nine to five, it's, it's 24 seven. You need as a business to be available to show up for your customers where they are. And that means increasingly to your point on social, that's where we spend the bulk of our time. Uh, I mean, I like to say that social is a new interface of the internet. That's where you, you kind of start and end your journey. So if as a brand, as a business, if you don't, if you're not there, you're not in the game, but then to your point, there's a, a staffing issue, especially in this, in this economy, right? So AI is not perfect. AI is a tool, but AI is good enough for redundancies, for repetitive questions, for simple tasks, right? And that's where, and, and that's usually like the good old Pareto, you know, 80-20 rule, right? 80% of queries are fairly simple. So it's convenient to have AI both for the business, for, for cost reduction, also for always on availability, but it's also uh, useful for, for customers who are I mean, I'm sure you're like me, like we're more impatient than ever online. I want the answer right away or I'm going to take my wallet, my business somewhere else. Uh, and so that's pretty critical just in terms of lead capture and servicing. So you guys are a social media management company, right? I mean, at the end of the day, part you're, you're, not everybody's going to see the work you're doing. They're going to see the product of the work because you're doing a lot of work for some very, you know, uh, very high level uh, iconic brands like Lacoste, Decathlon, Cirque du Soleil. You know, there's a whole bunch of companies in there. How do you how, how do you work with these companies and how do you get how do you shift people to using the 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 chatbots especially the older category is the are you part of this conversion of the individual or is that left up to the retailers themselves to push them in that direction Well yeah we're not just social we're omnichannel digital so website plus social but yeah I think you know what happens is that they use these brands use the AI as a First and foremost, usually it starts as a, as a cost reduction tool just to automate, let's say, like order tracking, right? And then they realize that customers start asking questions about product, like in the pre-purchase uh, phase of the of the customer journey. So that's where we we connect with what we call human in the loop. So either an online advisor or someone, you know, in the at the Decathlon or Lacoste store in store with our mobile app, we can pick up the call in a way, pick up the, the conversation, and start selling from a distance, which was pretty useful during the pandemic, as you can imagine. So it, 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 that's really kind of like that. It's hybrid, not just AI plus human, but it's hybrid also sales and support. It's not just customer service. Right. And the evolution of all of this, I mean, you go back to when we first started to use websites and our only interaction was whatever information we could find on the website. Right now, I mean, you're you're in a situation where you're personalizing the experience as opposed to everybody going to the same website. Now, through AI, you're personalizing my experience or your experience as you go in. Is there a continued evolution beyond this or is this is this really as far as you think it's going to go for the next little while? 
Well, you know, again, I think technology kind of like leaps forward every five, 10 years or so. Um, the problem with AI is a problem of data sets, right? It's, a, it's not the, the technology in itself, it's the training, it's the data set available behind it. So for AI to really kind of replace customer service agents and or, you know, salespeople, it would need to, to really learn from thousands, if not, you know, <laughs> millions of hours of, of these kind of interactions. Our play, at least at Heyday, is not to replace humans, it's to enhance them. So it's really to keep uh, the human for, you, you talked about personalization or, or sometimes more sensitive conversations, right? More complex situations. So I think the best of both worlds is really when you combine, again, power of AI is the scale, is the automation, is the always on availability. And the power of the human is the emotional intelligence, <laughs> is the personalization, it's the white glove service, right? And obviously, a lot of uh, AI, Etienne, in uh, everything that you do on a regular basis. I mean, it's so it's so baked into your company. It's almost, you know, it's it's part of everything, right? It's 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 all encompassing. Do you guys have any internal uh, guidelines or rules in terms of AI ethics? Montreal is home to a big AI ethics community. Um, what are, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, where what's too far? You know, what's what would be what would be too creepy or a little too invasive for the AI? Yeah, that's a that's a complex question, but I think in simple terms, number one, like you need as a business to be compliant with you know uh, GDPR, and, and you know we're we're in Europe a lot, so definitely we we tailor to local uh, regulations, uh, and and we try to go above and beyond, like we are, we're ISO twenty seven thousand one, you know, certified stuff like that. So that's the data privacy part. But I think and and what that means is that we anonymize all the customer data. So that's kind of step number one is to keep things anonymized, not you know labeled attached to a name. Um, and in terms of ethics, I think, you know, this technology, especially, I won't talk about AI in general, but I'll talk about AI in the context of, you know, uh, customer service and, you know, customer journey online. It needs to be assistive, not in interruptive, right? And, and so always at the service and on demand, but not, you know, interrupting or uh, kind of taking liberties and, you know, trying to figure out who you are as a person or going on a open chat about something. It's really about more like kind of answering your questions and opt-in, more of an opt-in fashion. And, and that's where we've seen sometimes in terms of like marketing ethics, especially in the early days, you would have like chatbots kind of retargeting people in the middle of the night, like on Messenger out of nowhere without really opting in. And then you're like, well, this is just spam, right? So we need to avoid turning messaging inboxes, like messaging app inboxes into our actual email inboxes filled with brands and like spammers and you know, all, all, all this stuff that I think that's really like step number one. And in terms of AI, well, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's keeping AI as a tool, not as a, as a human replacement. Uh, it's keeping it just to manage the redundancies, the, the robot work that I like to call. So let's take a look behind the scenes. Uh, I mean, obviously a, a good company doing what you're doing in the chatbot AI world uh, has people, right? I mean, it's, 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 this is not one big computer behind the scene here that's managing everything, contrary to what a lot of people think. Um, it's your tech company, right? So yeah. when when you look at this, and we'll get into this a little bit later with, uh, with Mia Baruki who's coming on, but um, getting people, acquiring people in the world that we're living in right now, uh, we know that this is a problem everywhere. Are you guys battling or are you guys sitting in such a sweet spot that you know that, that that people are coming to you where do how do you see the the employment market right now in the tech industry yeah it's definitely competitive and it's also you know post covid it's it's a global market meaning that most of the jobs especially in, the, in for engineers and developers it's 
remote first or remote friendly. So that means that your pool of talent is wider, but your comp- competition as well, right? <laughs> right. It's it's 10x the pool of talent, but it's also it's probably 100x uh, the competition. Uh, that said, we're fortunate enough that we're you know we we started out uh, out of Montreal. Obviously, we're based in Montreal and the AI office. Uh, of Suite and Heyday is a Montreal-based company. So Montreal is really kind of in a good, good position globally in terms of AI talent, huge and, and deep pool, especially per capita, let's put it this way. So we were fortunate enough in that sense. And the other thing too is being, you know, you, you saw, I mean, my name is Etienne Merino, right? So you can imagine it's a French Canadian, it's a Quebec, Quebecois name. Being French Canadian, my, my three co-founders are French Canadian as well. We started working with you know, French speaking and, and obviously national brands in Canada, we need to be bilingual by design. And then we started export, usually startups export more um, in the US first. Uh, we started exporting more in France first because of that French factor that differentiated us uh, out of the gate. And, and Europe, the European market is a bit more, uh, well, not bilingual, I'd say like multiple languages are required to service customers. But that was kind of part of our initial edge. It's not just uh, an English speaking or, or, or an English text uh, uh, AI, it's it's really a multilingual one. So I would say that because of that multilingual aspect and the local specificities of you know French language and, and all that, we were able to attract local talent because uh, again, Quebec-born and based uh, engineers they, they tend to care about that stuff, right? So locally, it, that gives us an edge as well. So the deep talent pool, but I, also I think the focus of the company being a multilingual, diverse company really helped us uh, attract cutting-edge talent from local universities and beyond. One question about language: We know that sort of on an individual basis, French can be tougher to to learn than English. In coding, is is it tougher as well? And is that why you decided to start with French? Because to to prove yourself in a way, and is 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 that part of the challenge as well to, to start with a tougher language? Yeah, well, I would say you know obviously like the code the code is a universal language, but but the, to to apply it, you know, the interface becomes language, right? It's linguistics, right? So understanding French. To your point, uh, not, not only it's probably a more complex and nuanced language sometimes than English, but when it starts, we're mostly dealing with uh, obviously messaging. So, so texting, you can imagine, especially at a local level, the slang, right? The Franglish. And then when you start exporting in French, uh, in French, sorry, well, the French have their own Franglish, their own brand, own flavor of Franglish. So all these local specificities, these different brands of French are, are needed to be factored in. And yes, it became... We kind of did it naturally because of the nature of our market. You know, when you start dealing with, at first we were in retail uh, specific, we were kind of like figuring ourselves out. And one of our customers was the government of Canada, the Ministry of Public Health. Obviously the government of Canada needs like stellar bilingual, you know, <laughs> technology solutions. So it just pushed us to kind of go down that, 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 that path naturally because of the local specificities. And then down the road, it gave us an edge when we started competing globally for example, a brand like Lacoste, well, it kind of helped us to be to be francophones uh, because at the end of the day, the decisions are made in Paris. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and and go to uh, well, I guess it's a it's a recent acquisition by uh, by Hootsuite of Heyday, going back, I guess, in the summer of 2021. How did this come about? I mean, you're a local Montreal company. You've got a certain environment that you're used to. You know what what prompts the move into uh, a bigger organization? Yeah, uh, it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. But essentially, you need to kind of go back. It was a different world a year ago, right? Uh, Cash was cheap. Interest rates were really low. Um, It was also kind of like the end of a cycle for the tech industry. Like it's been, again, like if you look at the macroeconomics, a 10-year almost bull market, (laughs) more or less. 
COVID was a bit of a little bump in the road of like two months. But then what happened with all the cash injection in the economy by the governments, it really enabled businesses to reinvest in their growth. And as a result, <laughs> you see me coming, uh, acquisitions, right? Uh, that give that gave most tech companies, the bigger, the bigger players at least, a, a bigger capacity to either raise money or get debt to make these acquisitions and grow. So it was kind of the perfect storm where there was a lot of consolidation in the market. Uh, technology market at the broader level, but also in the customer messaging, conversational AI, chatbot space. I mean, uh, one of our competitors in the US customer uh, was acquired by Facebook for a billion dollars. So that really kind of was the first domino, but it was a big splashy news. And then we started getting a lot of inbound, like getting LinkedIn messages and, and emails from, from prospective acquirers. Uh, at the time we were in for sale, obviously, uh, we were still a young company uh, and we had our best year. So it was kind of the perfect storm and like the stars aligned where we tripled revenue. Uh, COVID kind of helped us in our case because it accelerated digital transformation and the need for, for brands to, again, service their customers online on all channels. So for us, it created a need. We, we went from, you know, nice to have technology to must have overnight. And yeah, so, you know, growing sales, we're about to raise a series A of funding. So that would have been our second round. We had just secured a, a bridge financing round. So we still had like roughly like, I'd say like 4 million uh, of runway. So we're in force to do the move, but uh, we listened a little bit. Uh, we were, and then Hootsuite knocked on our door and Hootsuite is, Canadian, is based in out of Vancouver, right? So Canadian, fellow Canadian company, social media, we were more like messaging focused so more like private social, but very complimentary uh, on paper. And I like to say, like, when you, you consider an MA, like a merger and acquisition play, um, my methodology was focused around the three V's, right? Uh, vision, values, and valuation. So once you align on these three, <laughs> well, you sort of have a deal. And, and, and it was very natural to align with Ootsuite on vision and values. And then valuation, you know, obviously, it's a negotiation game. Like we went through uh, the whole rodeo where we had, we had you know, a, a banker and, and lawyers and we negotiated for months. Uh, it was an interesting ride. And, uh, and it went smoothly also. Like th these negotiations can turn sour, <laughs> uh, but it went very smoothly. So for us, it was kind of like inflection point, right? For how long will this economic boom last? Will it be harder to raise money? post, you know, bull market, post, post this run. And you kind of need as a startup to, to be very self-aware and as an entrepreneur to be like, okay, am I, do I have the means to have the ambition, to have the team, to have like all the kind of like key variables to go at it for another five to seven years? Because if we don't take that window of opportunity, then it means we raise money. Then we're kind of moving the, the, the touchdown zone, like the end goal, right? Where the new investors want to have a higher return on their money. So you kind of, you need to make a decision and, and yeah, it was just kind of like a, a fit that was too good uh, to say to, to pass on at the end of the day. That's, that's, that's really the, the story. It's in Marino. Very impressive. And uh, we're going to have your one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs in a few minutes. But first, speaking of tech, Mike, the, the competition in the tech industry in Montreal is so fierce. I mean, companies really have to go the, the extra mile to attract and retain talent. And with us now is Mia Baruki. She is a senior advisor uh, with human resources at FL uh, and their sister company, Pvisio. So Mia advises a lot of startups uh, on this very issue. Welcome to the show, Mia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Mike, yeah, as, as I mentioned, just a really, really competitive environment here in Montreal in particular in this one sector. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, we could take a whole show on the discussion of talent and attracting talent based on the world we're living in right now. But we're going to kind of narrow it down today and, and, and try and get into... Uh, you know, how do you be competitive in attracting candidates, especially in the tech industry, um, where we're just, 
you know, it's it, Montreal is a hotbed for technology companies mm-hmm. and something to be proud of. It also means that there's a huge, huge battle for talent. How, how, how do you help clients do that? Yeah, very good question. I think that in today's world, especially in the tech industry, outstanding talents um, won't actively be applying for jobs. So, um, and the main reason reason is I think that they don't need to because they're approached on the daily with tons and tons and tons of great opportunities. So um, aside, as an employer, aside from approaching them as well and reaching out with all the benefits you offer and what a great company you have, the best thing an HR department can do is really work on their great culture and showcase it. So whether you're doing it through social media platforms like uh, Glassdoor, LinkedIn, networking events, the best way, in my opinion, is really to do it through your own employees. So what I mean by that is um, if you really do have a great, great culture, and when I say great culture, I don't say great benefits, potlucks, bake sales. I mean a healthy working environment, uh, good relationships with your managers, flexibility, uh, and inclusive cultures, uh, career development, and all that stuff, your employees will become your ambassadors, okay? So once they become your ambassadors, they'll speak highly of the organization to their friends, to their families, to their uh, to people they went to school with. So anybody that approaches them uh, asking, how's your job? They'll say good things about it. And that will indirectly attract candidates towards your company. So cult- culture is, 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 is a word right now, I think, that is in everything that we're reading and everything we're seeing from an HR perspective. And no doubt that uh, the pandemic has accelerated certain culture issues that we were pushing and kicking the can down the road on. Um, but in a multi-generational environment, uh, you know, culture is very complicated right now. Dealing in the tech mm-hmm. world, where everybody's a little bit closer in age. Is that easier to help clients maintain and build that culture or is it equally challenging in that environment? I think it's I think it's equally as challenging uh, because even if you're in the same age group, you look if you have something that's offered to you, if you're looking at flexibility, people tend to be attracted by that also. No matter what generation you're from, if you see flexibility, if you see someone that supports you with your mental health, and, and whatnot, it's attractive, no matter what age group you're part of and what generation you're part of. So that, that engagement and engaging culture obviously has a direct impact on retention rates. Yes, exactly. And I'm going to bring it back a bit to, um, I'm sure you've heard of it, the terms uh, quiet quitting and the great resignation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you haven't, just quickly, I'm, I'm going to define them for you. Great resignation is, we've seen it through the pandemic. It's when you you're having more employees resign than what you can hire, okay? And that was, yeah, triggered by the pandemic. And on the other hand, quiet quitting is when your employees are still with you, but they're not uh, going above and beyond to uh, improve or to perform. They're doing just the bare minimum, okay? And that impacts um, motivation and performance. And what we want to do is try to work on that, to work on not being impacted by the great resignation and the quiet quitting that are trending right now to uh, retain talent. And how do we minimize that impact? So again, we're going back to the culture. So to retain, um, you need to work on your culture. And to work on your culture, I think that mainly you have to be, you have to to research trends. You have to be up to date, like we were saying before, whether it's uh, Gen Y, X, Z, and subscribe to newsletters, uh, competitors newsletter, business articles, the best and strong tool in my opinion, 
is pulse interviews, really questions your team members, see what they like, and then work on that. So assess their, uh, yeah. So this, this culture starts at the top, right? So this is a top-down discussion. Um, and, you know, you're talking with people who may be a little bit longer uh, in a certain position. You may be seeing them doing things that they've been doing for 10 years, 20 years. How are you helping managers adapt to these trends and policies that you're talking about? I mean, not, not only are they constantly changing and not only is the finish line in culture continuing to move, how are you helping these people who may have been doing and managing for the same way for 20 years all of a sudden adapt? Mm-hmm. So I'm a strong believer of knowledge transfer and coaching. So I think that coaching would have to be uh, the main way to help managers in any scenario, whether it's through uh, managerial training programs, workshops, one-on-one coaching. And I think that communication is key in that case, like keeping them up to date of the changes that are coming. Uh, if you're implementing a new uh, a new policy, if you're thinking of changing something, keeping the communication open is key. And make sure your HR department is always accessible, is always present, is always in their face in the sense of like they're present and they're there to help if they need to. Mia Baruki, Senior Advisor of Human Resources at FL's sister company, PVizio. Thanks, Mia. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And as we usually do at the end of our show, we'll turn to our guest and ask him for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. And it's Yen Marino, co-founder of Hey Day. Uh, what are your thoughts? What are your inspiring words? Well, I mean, there's so many like learnings through the journey, right? Um, I think you're probably going to be surprised by this, but I think my piece of advice was just survive another day, right? The path to success is actually much less glamorous and sexy than it sounds. Uh, and it's actually a game of survival. I mean, when it, when it, all the headwinds are gone and the quitters have quit, uh, those who kept on on battling and keeping the lights open while you know the storm was <laughs> was raining, those who survive another day, uh, the cockroaches I like to call them, uh, those survivors get to eat the cake and serve the tailwinds. And startups, in a way, are like 100% business Darwinism, right? So it's true. It's truly the survival of the fittest, but I would say of the most resilient. Um, we were. At Heyday, we were an underdog. Like we were bootstrap, first-time founders. Like, truthfully, we didn't really know what we were doing for the most part, especially at the beginning. But one thing that I really appreciated from our team is we never quit, uh, and we we just kept battling, and we just kept find, pivoting, finding solutions, and just staying in the game. And that's really my advice: just stay in the game another day, another week. Sometimes, like even when all hell breaks loose, like I remember having kind of like panic attacks, you know. And then the week after, <laughs> you feel like you hit rock bottom but the week after there's a major unlock there's a major meeting and there's something that just gives you a new kind of breath of fresh air and keeps you going and and, and it just it's a domino effect uh so keep at it outdoor your competition showing up is really really more than half the work and at some point the tide will turn right it's like I, i'm a hockey fan so um it's like when a scorer as a as a as a hard time scoring, just go in front of the net. At some point, the puck would hit, would, will hit you. Maybe you'll score with your your head, your hip, whatever. Uh, it won't be a sexy goal, but it'll be a goal, and it'll give you momentum and your team uh, for for to you and your team. And and that's kind of how you come out at the end of the tunnel. There are like thirty companies in your space. Then there are three survivors, and then these three survivors that divide the the pie, right? So I always felt like, you know, we we were surviving and almost dying every week, and then all of a sudden, we got acquired for 60 million. Like, if you ask my wife, every week, I would say, well, I don't know if this thing's going to turn out. You know, I was really managing expectations for myself and her. It's true. You you feel like you're going to die every day. So um, it's, yeah, just, just stay in the game. As simple as that. 
Dan, I see a book title in that one, The Path to Success, Surviving the, the Battle of Attrition. Hey, it's rough out there, especially in tech, but it's Dan, you're a survivor, and thank you for your time. And thanks for also mentioning Human in the Loop, by the way, because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to have someone thinking of humans in tech as well. Appreciate that. <laughs> well, you can't replace humans, that's for sure. <laughs> it's in Mary No. Heyday. A reminder, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. See you back here next week. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dan. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.